Hello, songwriters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the How Songs Are Made podcast, where we talk to notable artists about their songwriting process. I'm your host, Trey Xavier, and today I'll be talking to David Ellefson of Dieth about how they write songs. Today's episode is brought to you by my songwriting course, which is called Complete Rock and Metal Songwriting. It's 15 hours of everything I know about writing songs, everything from writing riffs and transitions to melodies, harmonies, drum parts, vocals, lyrics, and more. And you can find out more about that at the link in the description or at howsongsaremade.com. Also, just a quick note that after this stream, the video will become private and the video, the final video, the VOD is going to live on the How Songs Are Made YouTube channel, not this one. So be sure to head over there and subscribe so that you can get notified when that drops. This episode and all past episodes of the podcast can be heard as audio podcasts everywhere that uh, podcasts are hosted, or you can find them at howsongsaremadepodcast.com. And now... The new album, To Hell and Back, is out now on Napalm Records. Please welcome my esteemed guest, David Ellefson of Dieth. Hey, Trey, how are you? I'm great. So you are in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, one of my favorite countries. Yeah, well, lovely here. Yeah, I like it here. So what are, you, uh, what are you doing there? You can never have enough German metal, as they say. Right? That is so, true. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we're over here, so we're, you know, we, we dedicated the summer to being here in Europe, the band Dieth of Space, and so we started, um, kicked off the tour actually in Berlin with uh, Testaments and Voivod, and then we did some shows across Poland, so we made our way back over to Hanover, the Grass Pop Festival in Belgium last week, we did a little, cool little acoustic show up in Amsterdam. So we've played festivals, support, direct support, headline, and acoustic, all in like the first couple of weeks of the band's life. So uh, wow. we figured, let's just throw us, intentionally throw us to the wolves and see if we can hold up. And so far, so good. It's It's been a good thing. So, um, and it's, you know, it's interesting since we're on a podcast talking about songwriting, <laughs> you know, when, you, when playing acoustic, I think was, you know, that's a strip it down you know let's really see what you got kind of moment right and i'm glad the guys were up for it um you know paulo from sepultura is part of an owner of that bar the bro 2 up in uh, amsterdam and and some years ago frank bello and i from anthrax we were over here with our band altitudes and attitude and now uh, we were doing some shows with slash and we did a similar thing the night that we played with him and then the next day they opened the bar up for us on a monday night and we went in and we we played acoustic, so I'd done it once before, and I I, yeah, I knew it was fun. And but I think with me and Frank's songs, they were kind of intentionally more of kind of singer songwriter songs. Mm-hmm. But to bring Diet in, and you know, which is heavy and has a lot of bombast and a lot of uh, energy coming at you, you know, to break it down acoustic, you know, showed a whole other side of the songs. You know, first we played the songs, we played the album, right? So. Uh, you know, got to hear it, and then we went up and we played it acoustic, so you could kind of do the A B comparison. And uh, um, I think even we were pleasantly surprised with with how the songs, you know, they broke down nice. And you know, when you play electric, you're pushing out a lot of volume at people, so you're kind of blowing them back, right? That's sort of the intention of it, right? But when you play acoustic, you're you're putting you're dropping all that wall of sound, and you're actually letting people come in and get closer to you. Um, and sort of come into your realm and sort of fold into, you know, sort of the quality of the music. So it's, uh, 
it requires a very different approach, you know, to do both of those things. Yeah, you're you're drawing people in rather than like yeah, blasting them back. Let, letting them in, yeah. Yeah, letting you know, them in. The day before, you know, we played grass pop, so it's just bang, you know, just assault, you know. And as I stood in front of house, especially on those big main decks, I'm like, you know, they wire PA systems in mono, right? So they're, you know, so they had, you know, two stages. So there's basically four big line arrays. And even front of house, it's like, man, I mean, it's it's an awesome stereo, you know, millions of watts. But, man, it is intentionally designed to just really spank your eardrums and kick you in the chest and blow you back. You know what I mean? So, so uh, you know, to go the next day and literally sit in a, a corner bar about the size of my sofa here, you know, and, and all four of us fit on a stage with some, you know, the, the Taylor provided some guitars for us. And, and it's tricky because, you know, diet, we tuned to C, right? We tuned down to C. It's interesting. I think I had an Ibanez bass that the uh, Alejandro, the bar owner, uh, one of the owners there had, and it had like, some nice rubber strings on it, which was perfect, really, you know, it wasn't clangy. But, you know, normally with diet, when we record, I take a five string bass, you know, which is normally in, in B, um, and I tune the whole bass up a half step because, you know, when instruments tune down, guitars are okay with it. Les Pauls generally hate it. Stratocasters, depending, you know, the, they might fight you. Basses just hate being tuned down. At least that's what I've found, you know, and I know a lot of guys, a lot of the modern metal guys, they'll, they'll essentially take the bottom four strings of a five string and, and that will be their, you know, B becomes the new E, if you will, right? But with Dias, I tuned everything up a half step. So the bass is really tight. The strings are really twanging. And um, I don't know. I just, I just found it recorded a lot better than trying to drop it. You know, when you drop things, you get floppy. Amplifiers get mad. Speakers are super unhappy. And just the whole thing gets kind of... You know, pretty buggy down in the low, the lower regions of the audio spectrum. Yeah, well, it's it's either that or you get something with a really long scale length, and then it starts to, you know, the frets start to get huge. Yeah, yeah, and you know, guitar players, you know, they have these drop pedals, right? Which really sound pretty good, and I think Keppers do too, right? On some of these modern yeah devices, you know, you can most just of drop. them have something. Yeah, but the and but and they're fairly accurate um you know nothing's as accurate as just dropping for real you know what i mean but um you know it's it's so it you know there's some some buggy little things to work around you know i think maybe c sharp is a little guitars might be a little happier there c you're kind of really pushing the threshold of of uh where they where they like to be so you know a few little sonic things to to work out and you have to really kind of just stroke the string you know you're not digging in and yanking and hitting that thing very hard you know you're just kind of really you know kind of you know just you know kind of like a feather on the string to be honest with you you know which is which is a bit of a challenge because when you play really heavy music and you're thrashing and moshing your tendency is to want to hit the guitar pretty hard you know and if you do you're just going to naturally every time you hit it you're going to have intonation and it, problems um, and be out of tune the album it sounds like you're smacking the crap out of it the bass tone is enormous on the album it's and i know from from my pretty adventures big. in recording big, bass yeah. that it always the, to get that sound you gotta you gotta hit it good and hard yeah and that's usually. what i like about tuning it up you know is you can you can hit it you know and and it, it's more like a banjo right it's it's you know you know and then it, it whole i know you can't probably hear it but 
I'm not plugged into an amp here, but uh, you know, it's you you can hit it pretty hard, and it it's twanging. You know, it's 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 twanging pretty good, and 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 I and I just use the standard five string. You know, kind of I don't know what this is a one. I think it's a one twenty five and a one hundred five. You know, kind of a standard uh, you know gauge set like that. But yeah, you tune it up, and all of a sudden everything's like you know twanging yeah. pretty good, and it's got it it retains the pitch really well. Yeah. So um, beyond just the crushing bass tones and overall just very killer production um of the album let's talk about a bit about the writing because that's obviously what Mm -hmm. we what we do here so actually there's aside from the intro questions there's really only one big question that we uh ask here on the podcast and all the other questions are basically just follow-ups and that is that what is the songwriting process like for the band normally i ask well how was it different from previous um but because this is a brand new band right first first album so uh you you could contrast it with how you've written in the past um but basically yeah how is that how did that go this time well you know as they say you have your whole life to write your first album and about nine months to write the second one right so you know you've got all the time in the world to come up with that first batch of songs and in this case you know i got the call in uh, january 2022 so about a year and a half ago and we and we really from january to december of last year of 2022 we not only wrote and recorded the record we shot three music videos and really, you know, got signed to Napalm and put the whole thing to rest. I mean, the whole record, you know, we really got the whole thing done and and in the can and ready to go. And then this year was was, you know, the setup and the release. So I think what was cool about this. So I got I got the email in January, early January 2022 uh, with an introduction to Guilherme, our guitar player and singer. And um, I knew. I knew of Entombed and I knew of uh, Decapitated, but I did not know Guilherme and I did not, I had not met Me Hall before. So we were introduced on email. I said, sure, let, send me a song. Let me hear what you got. So they sent over the song that became in the Hall of the Hanging Serpents. And the it was kind of a demo drum, um, drum take, the guitars. It was kind of a, you know, a rough pass, but the frame, the tune was there, right? So I, I put bass down to it. And, and, I don't always like recording bass first. You know, I used to do that, you know, uh, back in the olden days, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And I learned making records over the years. I like, from a tone point of view, I like to put bass down a little bit later, sometimes after guitars are down. And from a compositional point of view, I like to put bass down even after there's a vocal melody down, because sometimes you can play around. That's kind of a pop sort of approach, you know, because you can, the bass can sometimes play around the melody of the of the vocal a little bit. Um, you know, so, so in this particular case, Guilherme had the song written. I played the bass on it, um, finished the drums, mixed it and realized we had something like, it's like, wow, this is, this is a new sound. This is pretty cool. We're having fun. I flew over here to Europe. We went to Poland, shot the music video, got the room together and we realized, okay, like we look good. We, we get along, um, you know, break bread, just kind of hang out as, as, as three dudes and see if you know, what it's like to, you know, hang and be in the room. So for me, I think from a band point of view, that's always important. And, you know, especially in this case where you've got a guy from Brazil, a guy from Poland and me from America, like, you know, three continents coming together. Uh, there was sort of this moment of just get in the room and, and, you know, and I didn't mind making the trip over here to, to, to make that happen, you know? Um, so, 
once we did that, you know, then we start working on some more songs. I think Wicked Disdain and Dead Inside were the next two songs that Galerme sent over. Uh, pretty, pretty completed. And, you know, then I, I hit Galerme. I said, so, I guess there's this moment where I'm like, okay, either I'm playing bass to his songs, and I guess maybe that's one level of commitment of my life, or are we going to co-compose things? Are we going to write together? You know, are we going to, you know, try to be collaborative? That's kind of a whole other level of, you know, how, how far in you want to go on stuff, at least for me. So I sent over a folder of, of riffs that I had because he was totally up for it. Um, and he, he really liked what I had, you know, it's, it's a bunch of stuff that I'd recorded and just, you know, kind of usually when I write, um, I'll write on guitar. Honestly, I don't, I usually don't write on bass, you know, at home I have a, I have a PDT 40 bass and I have a little Marshall mini stack and I'll plug it into it and I'll sit and I'll grind a bunch of riffs, but I play very differently on that. I don't play heavy metal. I play, you know, I don't know, just rock alternative rock, anything, you know, not, it's not a heavy metal thing at all. Um, so usually when I write, I start with guitar. So I, my, you know, even with Dieth, I, um, I, I sent over a folder of riffs. Uh, Glarme started digging into it, was liking it. You know, I default to him sort of as the musical basis of, of the group, not, not bassist, but bassist, right? Of sort of the baseline of sort of, you know, what's legal, right? What fits within the window of what we're doing here, you know? Um, so, um, because I think ultimately at some point, everything ends up going through his hands, through his ears. And because he initially was the only singer in the band until we got in the studio and discovered my voice, you know, actually had a, actually had a nice fit in the band. You know, that was kind of the framework of it all, right? So, you know, I sent to him that I sent over some lyrics. I sent over the lyrics for Don't Get Mad, Get Even. I sent over the lyrics for Heavy as the Crown. He really liked those. And and so I guess probably my first sort of kind of complete composition that I sent over is the song Heavy as the Crown. And I initially was starting that on piano at my house. I, was, I think it was in, in E. And I just... And I couldn't get it going, you know, so I pay I, next to the piano. I have a guitar at ESP. It's kind of like the cheap version of the Alex Skolnick signature model, right? It's, uh, but I just, I love it. It's, you know, I, I buy guitars. I think I paid $279 for this guitar at a local guitar shop and it just has songs in it, you know? So to me, I'm not a guitar collector. I have a gazillion guitars and basses, but to me, they have songs in them. And when I get my, one of my songs are out of them, I happily hand them off or sell them off to someone else and they can get their songs out of them. So this particular guitar, I pick it up, I drop tune it, you know, like I said, diet doesn't see, uh, I drop down because I think the guitar is tuned to E flat. So I dropped, did the drop D tuning. So that would be in a, I guess a C sharp, you know, D flat, uh, tuning. And I just, you know, I just, Started kind of chugging the riff, right? This sort of shuffle, metal shuffle thing, right? And I was kind of chugging away on it. And I kind of wrote the whole thing at once because when I write, even if it's just my little folder of guitar riffs I sent over, I usually write what seems to be probably a verse. And then I always try to tag a chorus with it um, because in my mind, I don't like just Tetris a bunch of riffs together. I, it's not, I don't write well like that. I, I kind of write in a song structure where I at least like to get a verse, a chorus, maybe a verse, a chorus, and sort of get the basis of a song together, right? <clears throat> so on this one, 
Then I just kind of started singing. You know, this very kind of Ozzy-esque. I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but it's just kind of children of the grave, you know? Right? I was just kind of just sort of scatting this this harmony, right? And what I liked about it is the music was really low. The vocal was really high. Again, it kind of had this early 70s Sabbath Ozzy-esque kind of thing to it, you know? Sleep, everything in my life, this is this is my digital audio workstation right here, my iPhone, right? I set it up. <laughs> set it up. I film it. I send it over to Poland and over to Galermes in Portugal now. So I I we transferred. I sent it over. I said, Hey guys, I had a couple of ideas. And they came back. Oh my gosh, this is great. I love this. And quite honestly, that was the first song that they both said, Okay, you're definitely singing on this album because they first time they'd heard my voice and and Galerme's got this, you know, dark, deep, guttural, you know, kind of death metal voice. And I've got this really clean, you know, uh, singing voice. You know, I'm, I'm really not a rock singer. I'm like a, this kind of clean sound, you know. So uh, going into the record, uh, as we got together then later in, in September uh, here German, south of Frankfurt here at, uh, at the Cola Keller Studios for a few weeks, you know, that was where I knew I was coming into the session I knew for sure I'd be singing Heavy as the Crown, and I, I didn't think I'd be singing on our ballad, I'd Walk With Me Forever. That's probably another story here in a minute. But um, I knew coming into this that I'd have that that song. And I think the second part of a song, so you know, I've got the music, sort of, you know, have a have a sketch of a vocal melody. So I feel like I've got a song working. There's something started here, right? There's something to grasp onto. Then it's about you know, Guilherme liked the heavy as the crown lyric. And he said, man, let's put those two together. I think that really works here. And the way that I had my structure, even when I write lyrics, you know, I'll write three or four lines at a time, right? Kind of in a stanza. I try not to get too rhymey because oftentimes the rhymey thing just sounds, it sounds just like kindergarten, you know, it doesn't yeah, sound like it's... It can get kind of nursery rhymey. Yeah. So sometimes if I'll, I'll just get a couple lines, I'll kind of get a story. And then I think the next benchmark for me is, okay, what's the song about? In like one or two sentences, what's the song about? So, you know, for me, it was, it's, it's the phrase, you know, to, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? So I was thinking about political leaders. I was thinking about. A former president in particular. I was thinking about uh I was thinking about abuse of power. Uh I was thinking about situations that I've been in where there's been an abuse of power or maybe, you know, just watching unfair treatment of things and you know, so I, I kinda started to put the storyline together, right? And and then for me that was that was that and and so i you know because i think there always needs to be sort of a protagonist if you will right sort of a, a lead character in in the in the storyline right and and in this case it's not really a true story it's not like something it's not like a personal journey for me you know it's okay to write about things that are not real you know it's okay to make up a story it's okay to take maybe a couple of people or factual things and sort of then create a story, you know, it's okay to do that. There's, you know, Harry Potter's not a, a real <laughs> event, you know what I mean? It's, but it's an awesome movie. It's a great book, right? One of my favorite uh, lyric writing teachers said this recently, we're, our job is to write the truth, not the facts. 
Like if we're writing, making a piece of art, we're writing the truth. Sure. The right. facts are malleable. We don't. It doesn't have to be an exact story that actually happened. And the story can ebb and flow, and you know exactly. So it's you know in this particular case that was you know kind of how. And 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 here's the thing. I think when you write a story, to your quote there, the truth, we always see a little bit of ourselves in it. You know what I mean? It's the old saying that, you know, if you write about somebody else, you know, there's this sort of, you know, what's your what's your POV? What's your what's your point of view? Because you're always going to see a little bit of yourself in that story as well. Or are you writing a song about you, you know, kind of from your perspective, right? Sometimes it's fly on the wall, you know. I, I go to Boys of Summer from Don Henley. I, I actually used that video concept as I drafted the treatment for the walk with me forever video, right? Uh, I drafted about a, a man and a woman. They're the protagonists in this story. And I'm like Don Henley. I'm sort of this narrator on the side, right? You know, I love how in that video, Don's like on this dolly or they've got, you know, the Flintstones background moving behind him, right? And <laughs> like a movie set. And he's just narrating the story. And then you see this guy and girl down on the beach and they're in love. And, you know, and you really feel oh man, summer's over. What a great summer and summer love or whatever it was. Right. So I, I, that's the storyline I adapted, uh, for the video to tell that story. So I'm in the video, but it's not about me. And I'm just a narrator in the background, essentially, you know, so, um, which is kind of a whole other concept of storytelling is telling the story through, through the lens of a video, because so many times, you know, we've written a store, a song, and then a video company comes in and they go, we think it should be about this and that. And it's like, that doesn't have anything to do with what we were thinking when we wrote the song. And sometimes the video needs to be very literal to the lyric, right? It should be. It should be very literal. Other times, you know, video directors come in and see something very different. You know, to Helen Back, uh, our video director, we shot the, that video in Katowice, Poland. And the video director, he took the three of us in sort of our lives and then there's this demon you know it's sort of like this this you know the good and the bad the devil and the angel and there's always this demon looming in the background right i guess it's kind of that saying resist the devil and he will flee from you but if you let the devil in now he gets a foothold in your life right so it was and he used it to each one of us a very different part of our our lives so you know which i thought was kind of a cool kind of a literal interpretation of of the song you know and and wrestling with this demon wrestling with the devil to sort of get to the other you know to hell and back right so um you know some i, I like video i've come to appreciate video especially the ones we've done with diet because they've been very they're very much a, another sort of visual component of of the songwriting you know you're sort of visually telling people uh outwardly um through you know the video channels like this is this is what we mean you know and uh and if you if that's not what you mean you better speak up now because that's what they're <laughs> going to shoot and that's what's going to be out there forever <laughs> i've always thought of a music video because i love music videos i've always thought mm -hmm. of music videos as like sort of scoring the song it's like the reverse of scoring a scene in a movie or a tv show right where you start with the right, visual right. and then you add the music it's like the reverse of that you're you're taking the the music and creating a little world around it and uh so that's always ultra fun and it's well it's and, really and it nice goes, when it turns out how you want it to and when it doesn't it's a little there's a the 
that sort of cognitive dissonance between the two elements. Yeah. Well, and it's you you bring up a good point because it's kind of like when you read a book and then you go see the movie, you go, oh man, the book was way better than the movie. And it's and and why is that? Well, because in a book it's left open to the interpretation of the reader, right? You and I could read the same book and have two very different experiences. Um, and, and yet when we go to the movie, we're both watching now this director, this screenplay, all the people involved in it, they've sort of summarized, you know, through a handful of scenes that they can fit in, say a 90 minute film, they've summarized and now given us, this is what they think the, the, the book was about. Right. So with songs, it's interesting because especially with lyric writing, because, you know, the, the lyric can mean different things to each listener. Um, and that's why I, I try not to even when people go, Hey, what's this song about? It's like, I don't know. What do you think it's about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's, it's, you bought the record. It's your experience. You know, uh, our job was just sort of to deliver it. We're like Amazon. We deliver it to your door and then <laughs> you take it inside and it's, it's, you do whatever you want with it from there. Um, I always say, you know, we, when, when artists make an album, we first make it for us, but when we put it out, it's now for you, you know? And that's, I think where, you know, once you put that thing out, you, you've let, you've let go of the control of what it is. And, and, um, you know, I've let, I mean, you know, people have all kinds of different interpretations of the songs. And that's, I, I think that's the beauty of, of what music does is it, is it hits people in different ways. Yeah. You write something with a certain intention and it's, you're always going in, you've got an idea of what it's about and you can put that into the music. Like you can, yeah, give it all of what it's meant to be and create it to be what it's meant to be. And, but then you put it out into the world and you can't control how other people are going to receive it, um, how they're going right. to hear it and, and understand what you've said the same way that they'll uh, yeah. interpret a, any quote that you say, or a, yeah, an interview that you're giving like right now, you know, they'll hear what you're saying <laughs> like and, right now. and hear a certain thing. What are they talking about? <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but but that's right. a that's a, a very important thing to consider when you're creating anything and songwriting especially. But um, people are always going to take what you've put out there and view it through their own lens in the same way right. that you were talking about, like writing from your perspective. It's always going to be from your perspective, even if you're writing the song as if it's from somebody else's perspective. It's always the interpretation of how you think it's Right. Going through. So really, it's always about it's always from your perspective, kind of. It's funny. So take Walk With Me Forever, right? The, the ballad that I ended up singing. And the reason I ended up ended up singing it is, is Guilherme brought the tune in. He had some ideas. He originally wrote it about his friend uh, Lars from Entombed, LG, as he refers to him. He had got cancer. He passed. He didn't really have this sort of closure with. It, right. So it's this this song about you know, about grief, about sort of not having closure of, of, of someone passing, right? So I step up to the mic, you know, Guilherme had a, you know, kind of a, a phrasing, at least in mind. And I stepped up and said, do you mind if I take a stab at some fleshing out some melody ideas, right? So using his phrasing, uh, you know, I just kind of, you know, developed all the way on my path. I feel that I can't leave this hole, right? And, you know, when you sing, you're always 
holding vowels, right? The consonants are just to sort of stop and start a vowel, right? On the way, so it's A E I O U, right? M A E I O U, right? So we're always holding these vowels, and you know, I find when singing, as I've you know taken some instruction here, even recently on that, you know, it's one of the things my 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 vocal instructor said. He goes, if you're struggling with a with a a a, a pitch, he goes, always refer to what vowel is it you're trying to sing. You know, and and let that vowel out because chances are you're either closing it off, or you're splatting it, or something, right? So there's these kind of things about the mechanics of of singing that apply. But I sort of had the right temperament, and and this and the band tuning to C is perfect, man. Because my, you know, I I literally my my voice literally sits in about the the key of like a an old seventies country and western crooner, you know, <laughs> like. C, G, D, like all the happy keys, right? You know, the keys they play in church and, you know, country and Western tunes, right? That's kind of where my my voice, E is not comfortable for my voice. It's just always been uncomfortable. You know, E, F sharp, these kind of rock and metal keys, man. My, it's those, in fact, you know, as a kid, I was an alto. When I hit puberty, I became a tenor, you know, and now in my, in my you know, my older age, I'm certainly a, a, a baritone with slight tenor tendencies, right? So, you know, within my range, F sharp's about as, that's kind of the, the, P, the top of my range. Uh, so, you know, so the, the, the standard A, you know, A440, A, E, F sharp, those keys were never comfortable for me to sing. And I could sing, so I always call it the Michael Anthony, you know, higher third. I could always sing mm-hmm. that pretty well. And probably peace sells, but who's buying is a perfect example. When we were in the room writing it, you know, peace sells, but who's buying? I was peace sells, but who's buying? You know, I automatically went for the Michael Anthony, you know, higher, uh, the Van Halen harmony, as I call it, yeah. you know. So, um, those were always just natural for me because, you know, I was always one of the singers in my bands growing up. And then at some point, you know, we kind of started to have a dedicated lead singer. So I was always doing the background stuff. And again, I love the Van Halen harmonies, super lush really filled out nice, nice and clean. You know, that's my voice is that real clean thing. Same with Boston. You know, these are things that I grew up with, you know, uh, eventually early, you know, some early Aerosmith, stuff like that. Things that were two-part harmonies. Um, so, you know, fast forward here. Now we're in, you know, we're in the studio and I'm singing Walk With Me Forever in the key of C. So perfect for me. And that's why it's, I think it, I finally found a song that, that I could sing really well. And, and even heavy as the crown is dropped. It's C with, with it's a, it, with a drop, right? So it's uh, like, like a B you know, flat, with, you know, down to the B flat, exactly to a B flat. So that's even lower. In fact, live, I find that it's at the bottom of my range. I mean, you know, how does it feel to be? I mean, it, it's, I got a, be careful how much pressure I put on my voice to not roach my throat from singing too lo- singing too powerfully too low, right? So I've just there's some new things I'm I'm learning about my voice live. Um, Walk for me forever is perfectly fine, but so as we're going to the to the lyric of this with Walk with Me Forever, you know, you know, it's kind of singing it true to how Galerame wrote it, right? It's all the way on my path. I feel that I can't leave this hole. What is the hole? Well, it's kind of this depressive hole that I'm in, right? So as the wind blows, every time I go and walk alone, so that's a pretty easy visual. So, you know, in my mind, as I'm singing these lines, I'm trying to get a visual, right? 
Um, now that you're so far away because you're you're deceased, right? You're you're in the in the ethers, the the, the, the netherworld. You know, there's nothing I can do to change that, right? So I'm just trying to narrate this, you know, this this story, right? So I think what hit me in the chorus is that it's a two part chorus. If I stay here on my own, you know, here on the earth, right? Because you're gone, but I'm alive. So if I stay on my own, will you walk with me forever? Right? Sort of, you're calling to the to the afterlife. Would you walk with me forever? I'm lonely. I'm scared. Sad. You're not here. You know, and if I wander all alone, in other words, I'm not with you anymore. You're not with me anymore. You know, I'm still with you, right? So if I stare on my own, you walk with me forever. If I wander all alone now during this lifetime, you know, I'm still with you. My thoughts are still with you. And then as I was singing this, and I think this is what I played into on the video treatment, is then the second half of the chorus is an answer to that, right? So now it's the deceased. Okay, so now it's the deceased talking to the survivor. Said, "Okay, well, if if I stay here on my own in the in in eternity, right, then you come and walk with me forever. Now I'm no longer all alone because you're with me, right?" And I I I that became so clear to me as I sang that it's the survivor talking to the deceased, and ultimately the deceased answers back and says, "Hey." You're coming with me eventually because no one lives forever, and eventually you will join me in the afterlife. And that sort of be, that sort of to me tied the whole idea together of this very haunting, melancholic thought of of the lyric. So, and I think it kind of came to me in the vocal booth. I was singing it, and that you know sort of helped helped me as as I was singing it. As we were developing the melody, um, Christian Cole, you know, uh, helped us develop this melody. And we did an interesting thing. We did the, Love that the Desmond Child half-step thing, right? And and Mutt Lang does a lot of this on the Def Leppard records. And, um, you know, where, again, I know you can't hear me here, but, you know, uh, where, where there's just these half-step modulations, right, to the pre-chorus and then up to, you know, so you're in C, and then it's just sort of half step, and then we half step up one more time to land on D for the chorus, right? So these half step modulations, you know, Brian Adams does this a lot. Um, that really sets up, you know, half step makes this really nice lift to the uh, to, to the vocal melody. It 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 it's 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 a key change. Um, it, it literally changes the key within within the song. Um, and it's, and it really opens up this, a feeling, right? All of a sudden it goes from this kind of dark, you know, sadness in, 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 in the verse, which is in C, but that by the time we mod it up, you know, a half step and then a half step to this chorus, it just opens up this big, beautiful, nice, uh, you know, chorus. So, um, it, that's the, the half step modulation thing that we brought in to that. So you did you did the work in getting from uh, what he wrote to you just n- not just singing the words that he wrote to have mm-hmm. something to sing you know like a lot of people could do just whatever you went all the way into what was written to really understand it and to get down what needed to be there 
to maintain that and enhance it instead of, yeah, just singing whatever <laughs> was on the page. Let's go back to a time before. So let's use Megadeth, for example, right? So, you know, in that band, I was not the singer. So when I would write lyrics, I would write a story. And as much as I liked it, I had to go, okay, is Dave going to sing this? <laughs> you know, is this something, you know, he's going to believably sing from the stage? Because uh, ultimately, you know, as the singer, you're selling the song, right? One part of it is writing the song, the other part of it is selling it. So is this something that's that's going to be that? It, Metal Legion, same thing. I would write me and Alex Skolnick. Mike Portnoy, uh, Mark Mengi, we would write lyrics and go, okay, uh, Floor Jensen from Nightwish is going to sing this. Uh, Alyssa White is going to sing this from Arch Enemy. Uh, Mark Osagata, you know, Randy Blythe, you know. So we're writing these lyrics. You know, the four of us are composing, knowing someone else is going to be the singer, right? So I, I've had quite a bit, bit of experience doing this in other settings. So, um, you know, you, you write something and you go, okay, uh, can we work towards, uh, and, and how committed to it are you? And I, and I think Glarme was, was, was malleable with the, this is the feeling. This is the sentiment. This is what I wrote it about. So it was sort of my obligation as, as the singer to not distort and twist that, um, because it was, it was his concept that he brought in. But as we then started co-creating on it and we started collaborating and, and co-writing it, you know, I always check with the person who brought the song in the door, you know, and if this, and if it's me, then I've had other singers do Jeff Scott Soto, for instance, he sang on, you know, for the Ellison Soto record, some of the initial stuff I had already written, me and my guitar player, Andy Martin Jelly had already written it. He said, Hey, you know, here's, here's a lyric idea we have. Here's kind of a sketch of a melody that we've lined out. And he was very respectful. It's like, do you want me to sing it just like this? Do you want me to take a few liberties? And, and I think our attitude always was, dude, you're Jeff Scott Soto, man. Freaking, <laughs> you do what an awesome you do singer you. like you does, right? <laughs> yeah, you do you, you know, and. And he loved it. He'd go, man, I goes, I don't think I've ever, I haven't been part of a record like this in like forever where everything I send back to you guys, you guys like it, you know? And <laughs> you know, I felt like we were like, like no Wayne and Garth, like we're not worthy, you know? But it's like, dude, you know, we got a great bass player. We got a great guitar player. We just need an awesome singer. That's you, you know? So just everybody do what they do. And I think there's, you know, uh, you know, again, songs and collaborative settings come in all different shapes and sizes, but uh, I always prefer the ones that at least I, I think I walk out of the ones most satisfied where it's like, you know, I got to put a little of my stank on it. You know, I got to put a little of my, my voice, my sound, my whatever, you know, on, on that performance. And, and, and it, there's been uh, many others where it's like, Hey man, just play it like this. And, you know, and you're kind of just sort of reciting the part, the way, you know, the way, you know, the maestro wants it done. And that's part of the business too. You know, sometimes people hire you to say, Hey man, you're great, but I want it done my way, you know? And, and so you get all, all kinds of different things. And so I think when you walk into any different setting, you know, sort of read the room, like who's in charge. How we roll, you know, when I worked with Max Cavalera on the Soulfly records, you know, uh, I'd come up with a part and I go, I say, what do you think? He goes, man, you're David Ellison. Do whatever you want, man. <laughs> I said, all right. I mean, a little more of this, a little more of that. He goes, whatever you want, man. You're David Ellison. Do what you want, man. You know, and, and, 
And uh, and even the guitar player Mark Rizzo, he, he looked at me. He goes, "Dude, this is like the most casual metal gig ever. Like it really is, <laughs> and, and it really was, man. It was so fun. And I just again play Max's songs because they're his songs, but to just you know uh, be able to put my own parts in, write my own cool melodies, and and that was one where it was nice to hear the demo. Uh, he'd write the, he, he, at home, he'd putting in these little four, four track, literally little four track kind of task cam videos or uh, recordings that he had demos and they were great, man. I mean, they, they literally sounded like the song was going to sound once we recorded it on the big desk and, you know, on a multi-track recording. And, um, but to know where the verses were, to know that kind of stuff was nice. Cause then I could sometimes play around and add, add licks and, and do stuff like that. So this stuff all comes in different, a lot of different sizes and shapes and personalities. So there's, uh, it's just uh, three dudes in the band, right? Yep. And it's, I think that's a cool number for a collab basis because, you know, you, the drummer will always put stuff in depending on how musical of a drummer they are, right? Have some input into the, right. Um, how it's going to go. But if it's, Two people writing the music and vocals part—that's like a you know kind of a—and it's easy to have easier to have a partnership, you know, than five or six yeah. or seven like people trying to like throw their everything in. And then it sounds like because you are able to be because you're both open to the collab, collab, you've got a lot of buy-in, mm-hmm. and it's not just a gig. You're you're you know you're not just david fucking ellison you could do whatever you want you're <laughs> yeah, right, you're right. the band and it sounds yeah. like that's that's working out pretty good yeah and i mean listen when you know glarmay's songs i mean look with megadeth i mean we could finish each other's sentences because we've done it so long you know i mean the dystopia record i literally sat down and recorded all the bass to a click track there was no drums there was no nothing it was just me working with dave literally playing bass parts to a click track right that was how the album wow yeah and so um you know, the, and again, that was a long time musical uh, partnership. So we knew sort of where the commas and periods and exclamation points went in the in the musical sentences, if you will. Right. So new musical collaboration with Guilherme and he brings in stuff that, you know, I get it because it's heavy. I understand some of the transitions, but, you know, like in, even in the Hall of Hanging Circle, like, Glarmy will literally change keys right in the middle of the song. Um, like kind of like we talked about with Walk With Me Forever, but he'll do it, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, Hall of the Hanging Serpent, the verse, right? And then all of a sudden run into like this F sharpie. It's like, where did that come from? Like, that's like a whole other thought, right? He just shifts thoughts and, and it's like, but yet it's 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 great, and then and then where it resolves on this B flat, well then that B flat begins the first note of the of the verse riff again. Right. So it's like he knows what he's doing, right? And it makes sense. It's just it's a it's a it's like I walked into a room with a whole other conversation than what I've been doing for the last forty years, and it was really welcome. It was really fresh. It was unusual. Um, and I think that's the thing that, you know, they needed obviously another member, uh, of the group, uh, to come in and, and kind of get a quick read and a quick study. And 
look, I've made a lot of records with a lot of great producers. You know, I, I got to say producers have been my best band teachers ever. You know, I have learned more from making records, producers challenging me to do things different, uh, challenge me to play different parts. You know, even, even, you know, I work with my friend, John Eccolino, who has the Focus Right Room and Platinum Underground out in, in Phoenix, right where I live. And I always say to him, I say, John, produce me. Here's the song. Here's my chart. I've worked up the tune. Um, but give me your eyes and ears, you know, and he's a guitar player. He's from the group Icon. So he's got great musical sensibilities, great guitar player. And usually what he tells me is, is, hey, stop playing guitar, play bass. You know, stop playing so many notes, you know, because my tendency and it's probably, you know, I go back and listen to Killings My Business and we're all just showing off. You know, everybody back in that day, we're all trying to outplay and show everybody that we're awesome. And, and you know, it's the old if I knew then what I knew now, I wouldn't have played so much. I would have played it simpler. Um, and, you know, and that just comes with musical maturity. And I think, you know, it wasn't until probably the 90s when I realized, you know, like we were working on the Cryptic Writings record. Song She Wolf's a perfect example where the guitar, this pattern, right? And normally, probably prior to that, I would have played that pattern, right? And all of a sudden, I just, when I was cutting the bass on that, because I think, the best I recall, we cut drums, then guitars, then bass, I think. And I think that's how we did it. And I realized, how big we could get the bass, but I realized, you know, just just hit eighth notes, right? Da, 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 da. Just lie, just lock in with the drums, and it, I realized it sounds like I'm playing the pattern, right? Because with a bass guitar, you know, every time you hit the note, it takes time for the note to un, you know, to develop, right, and unfold. That's you know, you go to concerts and you see the big subwoofers there's a reason it takes a lot of time for these notes to sort of you know develop uh because of the length of the frequency right so every time you hit a bass string you're essentially cutting off that note that you just started which would be nice to have it develop so um even with you know i'll, I'll use another one mark of cain is a song on this record that's super blistering fast it's uh, it's just out of control right and but it's funny that the the baseline under it is this halftime march. It's it's almost like a palm, right? Under this digga 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 da, right? The drums and guitars are just flying. But underneath of it, I had to go back and relearn the bass part because I forgot what I played on it when we were in there because we wrote it in the studio, wrote the bass line. And it was kind of like the John Acolino thing. He's like, dude, stop playing guitar, play bass. You know, we somebody's got to be in the slow lane holding this together here because everybody else is in the fast lane and it's ready to fall off the rail at any given moment. That's why we like it. It's so freaking blistering, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm the one. You know, holding down. You're Spider-Man holding the bus that would be falling off the edge of the, uh, you know, of the bridge. You're the yeah, it's holding it down off the rails, and I'm as like, it's, going it's still of, going, yeah. but yeah. you're and, keeping and it from going into the water. Because even live when we play it, you know, I got to really kind of pull back because the drums are, you know, bugga 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 this thing, you know, and I'm just kind of back there just kind of doing this, in, you know, this, this halftime internal metronome. 
Like I picture nice to play in orchestra band and marching band, right? So it's like the guy with the sousaphone and the tuba. Right? Yeah. You know, these these ironically I'm in Germany, these old kind of German pub <laughs> tunes, you know, do 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 right. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, everyone else is just, you know, thinking orchestra band, the piccolos and the flutes are they're Ingve, right? They're shredding and you know, and I was tenor sax, so I was kind of in the middle. So sometimes I would shred. Usually I was kind of had half shred, you know, uh-huh. kind of sitting next to the baritone, the alto, and then behind me was the brass, the trombones, and the the baritones, and eventually the tubas, you know. And the, and the bigger and longer the instrument, and the, the longer the horn of the of and the bell of the instrument, you know, the usually the less notes you played because it just took longer for the air to to move out. So it's just kind of these simple physics. So that's, you know, there's another compositional thing, you know, of, of fitting parts together, you know, even in a, you know, in a death, death metal band. Yeah. You said that you were like kind of coming up with that part in the studio as you're recording it. But as you guys are writing these songs, um, the initial parts of them, you're coming up with these ideas. Like you said, you've got your, you know, your riff ideas, you're recording on your phone, you're sending them. Um, them out and they're getting worked on um are you ever putting together like uh like demo versions in your recording software or anything or is it mostly that you're sending out these ideas and somebody else is uh sort of arranging them or how does how does it get from that initial idea to a complete thought before you hit the studio good question so you know it's funny when we got signed to Capitol Records with our P sells money, we bought a Tascam. It was a it was a six input, but it's four tracks, right? And it none of us used it. Finally, in by like the early nineties, like nineteen ninety, right? So about four years later, I'm sitting at my house and I'm starting to make demos, right? And I'm doing the Beatles thing where you bounce it all over and then you bounce it all back to two, so you get two more tracks. So I'm doing it. And I'm really getting into it. And this time, Pro Tools, I just bought my first Macintosh. Pro Tools was just really a two-track editor at that point. It was not yet a uh, the TDM multi-track thing that we know of today. So, um, and there were some other software things, but we were still mostly working with tape, right? And, you know, I was into it. I, I enjoyed the, the analog science. You know, as the kid growing up in Minnesota and my bands, I was always the guy that owned the PA. I was always buying the equipment. So I understood crossovers and, you know, all the different frequencies and, and you know, sort of preamps and inputs and gain structure and stuff of, of, of a PA system. So I, I, you know, I did a lot of this stuff into the early 90s. And then it seems like at some point, I just really lost interest in 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 having a, a digital audio workstation because you know what 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 pissed me off about it is I'd get a musical idea I'd be in a musical mindset and then all of a sudden I'm like oh my god how do I get this freaking why isn't this thing coming in I see the meter but I don't hear it you know and then you know ten minutes later I'm like I just lost my musical idea right so I realized for me I'm not very good at doing both. And so if I'm going to create, just set the iPhone up, just record it, right? At least I've got the idea cataloged, right? And like I say, now with Dive, we transfer the stuff over right away, right? Immediately, I just get it right over to the guys. So we've got it stored in some opposite, you know, sides of the world. And we just, and then we've got, you know, album two folder that's got a lot of stuff. I'll do the same thing with lyrics. Um, I'll be, especially when I'm traveling, when I'm flying, I'm moving. It seems like stimulation coming at me whether it's 
driving or at 600 miles an hour in an airplane or something, you know, I get this stimulation comes to me and I'll, I'll get an idea and I'll write it. And even if it's just kind of a, a verse idea or it's a bunch of stanzas or, um, I start to get some ideas and I, I'll always put them into, I got lyric folders on my laptop here. I'll start sharing those with the guys, uh, say, Hey, here's a, here's a new lyric that I, that I just wrote. Uh, sometimes I write it top to bottom, like heavy as the crown. Other times, same with Don't Get Maggot Even was kind of a completed thought top to bottom that I wrote. And, and other times it's just a few stanzas, you know, of some things. And so I just, I keep all of it. So when it comes time to go into putting the song together, like in the studio, I've got oftentimes extra lines, you know, and I'll even note it at the bottom of the document, extra lines, you know what I mean? So in case I got to pull some stuff up. Um, but yeah, I I don't sit at home and make these completed demos. I, I really don't. And I know I probably should, but I don't. I just, I, 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 I and sometimes I'll go down to Acalino's place and I'll just pick up a guitar and go, dude, just, just. Get me some tone, plug into a fractal, get a good tone. Let me just carve some riffs. I'm just, I'm in a riff mode, you know what I mean? And I'll just riff out and I'll write six, seven things. Sometimes they fit together and you know, other times they're just pieces. And I'll just say, look, just give me that. Let me take those home. And now at least I've got a bunch of ideas that I can start working on. And, you know, you never know how you, how you come up with, you know, look, Nick Menzo, we're working on this movie, right? And one of the ideas I had, I didn't realize how prolific he was after Megadeth. He had a ton of songs and things that were never completed or never came out. I said, pull up his drum track. So we pulled up some tracks and I just started carving riffs over it. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to write with, with Nick right now, right? Nick's posthumous, right? He's, he and I are going to collaborate and we're going to write tunes. So we basically did a whole soundtrack with us collaborating with Nick over drum parts that he already wrote. And, wow. all, and a bunch of us writing stuff. So there's another whole concept of writing is, is just give us, give us some Nick Menza, man, throw it up and let's, let's throw it down. And so writing entire songs over his, uh, you know, drum tracks that he had that no one ever did anything with and they never, they never saw the light of day. So, um, we didn't necessarily have to even take the entire song. You could say, dude, let's take that. Let's take that. That's a great section. Let's write a verse right there. Let's take this other piece. We'll write a chorus. You know, you could almost chop it up and, and carve it up and create new song ideas with it. But it's really Nick. It's really his performances. And, you're, you know, you're, you're collaborating with, uh, with Brother Nick. So once you send these ideas out, is it uh, Guilherme that's putting them sort of into a song format? Some like does he take what you've got yeah. and do you then hear a like a more fleshed out version of it before you actually wind up in the studio or are you working on it together like that? I call him sort of the master composer. You know what I mean? It's sort of like we we, we need a headquarters to send it to. Get it over to G Man, as I call him. Right? Let's get it over to him. Um, he can sort of interpret it, make sense of it, um, and and I think that concept works well because at least we have a sort of a, a think tank we we got a central brain you know to sort of pull it all together um because again he you know he kind of defined the sound of the band i think from the beginning so i think that's a good place to keep it um and, and i don't mind if if he takes stuff that i write and and tweaks with it and moves it around and um you know and even you know, again, sometimes I'll write. Now I kind of try to intentionally write things in the key of C because I know that's where it's going to ultimately end up. 
uh, with Diaf. In the beginning, I was taking things in all kinds of different keys and sending it over, you know, just so that I would, you know, so that I just kind of have it over there for him, you know? Yeah. So then you're working with, uh, you said you're working with Christian Cola. Was he just the engineer or was he uh, he or anyone else doing any kind of like like producing sort of um, giving some opinions or feedback or tweaking the songs or any of that sort of thing? Or is it just mo- mainly the three of you? No, he, he for sure did a lot of, especially on Walk With Me Forever. He really helped flesh out the vocal melody and I think even a little bit of the wording for the chorus because we kept the storyline intact. But we, you know, he's a very musical guy, right? So he writes with guitar and that really helps, you know, when a guy can sit down, you know, I guess with keyboards or whatever, but but in particular, in our case, this, you know, working with guitars, you know, he would pick up his guitar and he would start chugging away and he's a great player. And I think it really helped in with that song in particular, you know, for the most part, we recorded a handful of uh, bass things there with him there. He's got three different rooms there. So he's got his main room. Um, he's got a second room that he was always having another engineer do a lot of editing with. And then there was kind of a, a little C studio, if you will, Studio C. And and me and Guilherme spent a lot of time in there uh, working on stuff almost autonomously from what was happening in the other studio. You know, Guilherme did a lot of, um, and he works on Logic. So Guilherme did a lot of the, pro- a lot of producing himself Um on on this record you know he cut most all of his guitars over in portugal Michal took all of his drum ideas back to his place in in uh, poland in gdansk where he has a, a room a great drum room he cut all of his drums there so our time with christian it was sort of a communal moment for us to come together and I think probably it was the it, I was the one who probably benefited the most from it. Um, we recorded some bass there, like I said, we did Barker Kane, Free Us All. We put Don't Get Mad, Get Even together as a song. Um, you know, when I came when I came in, I said, "Man, why don't we?" I had this idea with that about writing it as a sports theme, like a UFC, NHL, hockey kind of thing, right? Where um, you know, don't get mad, get even. You know, kind of, you know, we will rock you, but something, you know, you go to, when you go to hockey games, you know, different sports are kind of tuned into different music cultures, right? And hockey mm-hmm. for sure is a, you know, hard rock heavy metal. You hear a lot of Metallica and Pantera and this kind of stuff. So I thought, you know, let's, let's just kind of create that sort of anthem arena rock chant, you know? Uh, so that was where we started. We had the tune and then I, then we, we together created, you know, we created this, this intro, you know, the sort of this, this battle cry, a call to action, if you will. And so that, that we did that at Christian's place. You know, again, it was fun for me to work with Christian, just recording bass, you know, just to get different ideas, you know, to, you know, again, I'm, I don't walk in so much going, even if I have the part that I want to play, you know, to be able to go in and, and just say, Hey, give me some suggestions here. What do you think? You know, because again, producers are incredible. They've been the base, best bass teachers I've ever had, you know, because, you know, I don't, I don't want to just sit in a bedroom and learn how to shred. I want to make records, you know, I want to, I want to make recordings that hopefully outlive me, <laughs> you know what I mean? So what is it about those performances that are so magical? Even at the end of Mark of Cain, you know, when we went to that, boom, 
but uh, right, we hit this halftime thing, right, with these big long, you know, glissando bass slides. Right, this halftime thing. You know, a lot of that was was Christian. You know, saying, "Why don't we, you know, break this up here?" And you know, I I played and came up with the parts, but he had a he had a lot of good direction on how to sort of compose the part. You know, and that's that to me is what a great producer does is they 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 come in and they they help you know with the um, you know pr- produce this tur- pull it together. You know, let's pull this whole idea together so that it's a, a thought. You know, that the whole thing is a completed thought. Another thing that I've found is really helpful in tracking with someone like that is that they set it up so that while you're performing, it sounds really great so that it's closer to what the final thing will sound like. And it's really inspiring. Whereas if you're at home, you know, in your bedroom, in your maybe your home studio, even that might be okay. Like I'm not much of an engineer. So if somebody else is tracking whatever, especially vocals, I find like, if it's not like compressed enough, and like, sounds really good in your ears, you're not going to sing right. And it's the same. Yeah. So working with somebody like that, especially Cola's got the sauce, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. And, and, and and I look, I give him credit for getting me in the right, you know, getting this sort of whiskey smokiness of my voice for walk with me forever. You know, he helped me you know, it, it took a minute, right? It was like, okay, I'm in this dark. I mean, our vocal booth was just this little. It was basically a, a a a room between two rooms, right? That's all it was, right? Had a vocal mic, trying to get a mic stand in there, the headphones, and you know, I mean, it was literally like this little area, right? Yeah, pretty much, right? And people could walk from the kitchen behind me over to the <laughs> studio C, right? I mean, it was literally this. This, uh, and you know, it was great because Guilherme had a, he's got a really good concoction here with, uh, with, um, and I carry it with me with, uh, ginger, like raw ginger, lemon, and, uh, some hot water and, yeah, honey, honey, ginger, lemon. And, and boy, I tell you what, that stuff, that'll knock anything out of you. I mean, you could be dying and you'll, that'll kill anything inside of you. So it was really good for the voice, you know, so we'd sit around and, teetotalers right we'd be sipping this little concoction but really helped my voice but you know as we're working on the song you know just getting in the mood right and he's like now give it a give it a little more make it sound like you just smoked a pack of cigarettes you know so he's like, all right on my way on my back okay no too much pull it back a little bit okay you know kind of find it right and it's like that's perfect right there that's it that's that's the tone we need right and once i settled into it it's like you could get there. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I get the character because, you know, you really, when you're singing, you're character acting, right? You're, you're, you know, that's why I love these actors who do these animated like Pixar, right? You know, you see Jason Alexander and Ellen DeGeneres and these famous actors, you know, and they're in there doing these silly cartoon things. It's, it's very, it's very creative, you know, to create these characters and, um, and that's really what you're doing when you're when you're singing and when you're quote unquote cutting a vocal. You know, it's your your you know, your your in this case doubling, you know, then I did all my own harmonies and did all my own harmony stuff as well. So, you know, really, you know, took the time to 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 create it. And, you know, my voice would, would last for a while and it's like, okay, I, I can hear I'm getting a little fatigued. Let me stop right now. You know, and then I'll come back to it. Just I just need you know, give me a half hour to just kind of let my voice recover a little bit and then come back so that it, the voice, you know, that the, the vocal take is consistent throughout, that it's not getting, 
you know, fatigued so you can hear it, you know, from, you know, from one take to another. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's a lot of little, a lot of little tricks when you're, when you're cutting a vocal, cause you know, you're really at the mercy of, of, uh, of how your voice feels at, at that moment. And that on that day when you're recording. It's the the eternal struggle that you can always put new strings on your guitar or bass, but right. your voice is uh, you got to catch it at the right time. Sometimes um, I was thinking about something that you that you said a little a bit ago about if you knew then what you know now. Right. So, do you have any um, sort of advice or tips or even any just kind of perspective having played music for so long and been writing for so long? about for people who are maybe starting out or have been doing it for a little while just anything about songwriting that's hit you really hard over the many years that you think is worth sharing something that maybe you would say to your to your younger self starting out writing stuff well you know like i said you know the 80s was shreddom right it's like how many notes and you know i focused so much on the left hand and all of this stuff and it wasn't until i got got in the end of the studio and started cutting tracks that you know the producer would say all right like can you just play eighth notes can you just play you know just do this da, 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 da. you know what i mean can you just do that because if you can do that to a click we can keep you if you can't we're gonna have to get someone else to play it so i learned real quick get rid of all this crap just da 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 you know just play play bass so i think you know you know, a lot of that, I think, was probably in sort of the performance stuff, you know. And then so when it comes to writing a song, you know, I think it's always about what are you trying to say? You know, it's it's always these questions to ask yourself. What's the song about? You know, try to answer it in one in one sentence. Oh, it's about this guy meets this girl, you know, they fall in love. She breaks his heart and, you know, he's sad, right? Whatever it is, right? Or heavy is the crown. Hey, you know, every, you know, heavy is the crown, you know, head that wears the crown, right? So, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's, a, and in that case, it's maybe, it's sort of a, a, sort of an adage, if you will, right? So, so, you know, know in your, to yourself, what is my song about? Who am I writing it to? And I think probably the third thing is, is, is do I like it? You know, I think if you try to write a song for somebody else, that's a really slippery slope because how do you ever be satisfied with that? You know, and I think um, even if you're, you know, in Nashville, for instance, you know, there's, you know, it's a town built on songs, right? People are always in the studio writing, you know, writers are put together for three hour sessions, you know, to write a song. And, um, you know, I like to always have a plethora of material around, you know, I like to always walk into a, to a a writing session with some material. Like I said, my folder of riffs, I sent my folder of lyrics, I sent. Um, And even if we don't use them literally or use any of them, to me, it's sort of the introduction, you know, Um, and then sit down and, and sometimes, Hey, let's put that folder aside. It doesn't matter. Let's, let's just, I love that part you're playing here. Play that one more time. Let me, I got something right here. I think that might come along with that, you know, and all of a sudden you're collaborating and the ideas develop like that. So I think when I go into writing sessions, I like to be a little bit prepared. And then ultimately I think the song finds itself, you know, and uh, you're really there to just be a channel to let the music flow through you. You know, you really aren't writing the song. 
You know, the song is out here. It's energy. It's spirit, right? It's writing is a spiritual thing. So all you're really doing is being a channel. Probably the greatest thing, say a prayer, <laughs> you know, right? Whatever, whoever, God, just let it flow through me. You know what I mean? I think that's always the prayer I say. Whoever, however, whatever that is, you answer to, you know, just let it flow through me, you know? And um, I'm just a channel. Let it come through me because it's, I'm just the, the sort of the conduit by which the, the message flows from me out to the, out to the audience, you know? So I think that kind of gets me out of the way of the song, you know, and just let's, you know, I've, I've, I've been trained, I'm skilled, I've practiced, I've done the homework and all my skills on the instrument or singing or whatever, all that really does is it just allows the song to flow through me. And so I think ultimately that's really what we are as songwriters, is we're, we're just a conduit to let the spirit flow through us. That's a hell of a quote. I'm, a, I'm clipping that one. <laughs> and Use I think it that's, as you want. <laughs> awesome. I, and I think that's a, a great place to wrap it up because that's oh, that just sums it all up in such a nice, neat little, whoop, put a bow on it, you know? I love it. That's well, cool. Um, and uh, that's that's great advice, I think, really getting yourself out of the way of the song and um, and BN, being a conduit for what's coming and not getting in the way of it. That's really hard to do. It's it's really important. I always try and keep it in mind, but oh, man, it's putting it into practice. <laughs> well, it's, it is practice. Um, but is. hey, so uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to come and talk to us, talk to my audience um, and all that. And um, congratulations on the album. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about what's coming up for the band? Sure. Yeah. Look, we have a, a summer ahead of us here. Um, I know we're about a month into it. We you know, launched the band with the album just came out. Like I said, we did all these different shows to kind of throw the throw the band to the wolves and see if we survive. And And I'd say we not only survived, we thrive, which is good. You know, the road is where bands grow. It's where you really find out what you're made of. Um, you know, we're excited already about album number two, but we're letting this process of the road, you know, galvanize us and, and reveal more because, um, again, just let, let more be revealed, uh, of, of, of who this band is. So the more time we spend together, uh, the better we get, uh, the closer we get, the more vulnerable we can get with each other, which helps us always write a better song. So um, a bunch of shows and festivals coming up here now until early September. And um, then after that, we'll uh, regroup to see what uh, the rest of the live shows and the, the touring goes. You know, I think with us, this isn't a band that we just want to be down in the trenches grinding every, you know, every bub pub and bar that has an outlet for us to play. I think we want to be a little more discerning about when and where we play so that the band presents well. And, you know, I feel like to Helen back was a story, you know, it was, we were really pulled together, the universe, the good Lord, whatever, pulled three random dudes together from three different continents who had a similar story. I mean, I think that there's a lot, for these purposes of what we're talking about today, writing a song, you know, this album is a collection of 10 songs that tell a story and none of us saw it coming and it just landed in our laps. And so, um, you know, to the story of to Helen back and now telling that story so that other people can 
relate to that. Um, you know, that we don't want to burn ourselves out on the road in a way that, that we're just, we do, we, we drag ourselves in the studio to write album number two. You know, we, I think it's important with this that we pace ourselves so that we're fresh because this really is about writing stories that I think is what this band is about more than just kicking the shit out of ourselves on the road every day. So we're, we're pacing ourselves, you know, which I think is, uh, it's a, it's a healthy, mature place to be in in our lives right now. Great. Well, I'll be looking forward to more of that. And, um, Hopefully, uh, all the people out there listening and watching uh, will go and check out the band, uh, your various music videos, uh, follow on social media, listen on all the streaming platforms, all that stuff. Um, So, once again, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you on uh, behalf of all of my listeners. And um, enjoy the the rest of your time in Europe, and uh, hopefully talk to you real soon. Cool. Thanks, brother. See you, you, Trey. Bye. 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 Recording stopped. As I mentioned before, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by my songwriting course, Complete Rock and Metal Songwriting. You can find a link to that in the description below or at howsongsaremade.com. Thank you all for tuning in live. I stream these live on Mondays, and uh, then the final episodes are, as I mentioned, on the How Songs Are Made podcast channel. So I will see you then. On at the next episode, have a wonderful week, and I'll see you real soon. Bye!